And this article is entitled, Idolatry in the Evangelical Camp, Pictures of Christ or the Glory of God. It was written by J. Virgil Dunbar and Richard Bennett. It is being read by Virgil Dunbar. This article may be found on the internet in text form at www.bereanbeacon.org. The article presents eight reasons why Christians, especially evangelical Christians, need to avoid using pictures to represent Christ. It seems as if most churches, if not all, use Warner Solomon's Head of Christ painting or images like it. Modern Christians obviously accept these pictures to represent Christ. However, in the light of Scripture, can they really be excluded from falling under the second commandment? Number one, these pictures break God's law and defile God's grace. Does the church know what the second commandment teaches? Let us review the words. Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 to 6. What does the commandment actually forbid? It forbids any image or likeness to stand in the place of God. We are not to bow down to them nor serve them. Of course, we may think when we bow before an image of the Lord that we are not bowing to the image but bowing to the Lord. Or we may think the pictures serve us, for instance, serving our purposes of Christian education or evangelism or our worship of God. But later, hopefully, we may see that in God's sight we really serve the pictures. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them. Exodus 20, verse 5. Why does God forbid using pictures and images to represent him? Three or more reasons are given in the commandment. First, it says God is jealous of them. Evidently, God sees the pictures as other than himself, that is, forming false concepts of him, competing for our affection. Thus, when we use them to stand for him, it is like, as some old writers observed, a husband using another woman to put him in mind of his wife. In this sense, it is spiritual adultery to use an image to stand for God, and God is jealous of those pictures. Secondly, it is called iniquity, sin, to use such pictures. This iniquity becomes a generational sin. It is passed down to future generations. Later on, we will see more on this generational curse. Thirdly, using pictures or images to stand for God is shown here to actually express hate for God. How can God call it hate? How can God say we hate Him when we say we use the pictures to express our devotion to Him? The answer is that when we mentally put a picture or image in His place, we thereby show we do not love Him as He is, 
but love him as we change him to be. Whereas God is fully spirit, immaterial, we attempt to expose him in the form of man, material. See Romans 1, 22-32 for what happens when we allow images to become our concept of God. How then on the positive side does the commandment tell us to love God? It says those who love him are those who keep his commandments. The Apostle John said the same thing, for this is the love of God that we keep his commandments. 1 John 5.3 Was this law only temporary? Did it end when Christ came? Of course not. God's law is eternal, and his grace writes it on the believer's heart. In the Old Covenant, the law was written on tables of stone. In the grace of the New Covenant, the law is written in the hearts and minds of God's covenant people. Hebrews 8, verses 7 to 12. Furthermore, God's law is Christological. That means it points to Jesus, the Christ of the Bible. As Jesus explained to the two disciples on the Emmaus Road in Luke 24, verse 27, and beginning at Moses, the law, and all the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He showed them that he fulfilled the law. In other words, he filled full all the shadowy outlines of the law. The law pictures Christ. Pictures do not. Do we need the Ten Commandments today? Yes. And so today we condemn the Supreme Court for not allowing the commandments to be posted on schoolroom walls. Why don't we in the church teach the law against false images? Do we not condemn ourselves when we in the church boldly break the second commandment by using a false picture to represent Christ? We, perhaps unwittingly, teach our children to break the Ten Commandments when we give them pictures to represent Christ. Can we legitimately expect holy God to refrain from applying Exodus 20, verse 5, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation, to our children, grandchildren, and great-grandchildren? Children see their parents aim to communicate their Christian faith with a picture of Christ. The children assume the picture is a valid picture of Christ, so they in turn pass that Christ on to the third and fourth generations. The picture becomes a generational curse. These pictures break God's law, defile God's grace, and corrupt our future generation's concept of Christ. Number two, contrary to popular opinion, pictures of Christ are idols by, def- by Bible and dictionary definition. By definition, idol comes from the Greek word idolon. Idol, our English word, is seen in the center of the Greek word for idol. But there is more to learn about the meaning of idolatry in that Greek word. Idolon also means image. Translators must look at the context to decide which English word, idol or image, is meant in a particular context. Moreover, eidolon came from a more ancient uh, Greek word, eido, which created two families of words. Eido came to mean both to see and to know. 
We think we know something when we see an image, an eidolon. Thus, when we think we know Christ by seeing an image or picture given his name, we practice idolatry in the basic meaning of the word. This is a common practice in Sunday schools today. It is also a common practice in missionary work, giving new converts an idol to be their first concept of Christ. Historically, the use of such pictures of Christ eventually changed or dumbed down the popular definition of idolatry. Using these pictures, the church forgot the basic premise of idolatry. Today, already on a popular level, the word idolatry only means worshipping something known to be a false god or a heathen deity, something other than God. However, we must remember that the words idol and idolatry have the more basic meaning. Here are four dictionary definitions of idolatry taken from a variety of dictionaries, all of which show that using an image to represent God is idolatry. The Zondervan Pictorial Bible Dictionary says idolatry is the worship of Jehovah by means of images. Unger's Bible Dictionary says idolatry is the worship of Jehovah under image or symbol. Pelubit's Bible Dictionary says idolatry, strictly speaking, denotes the worship of deity in a visible form, whether the images to which the homage is paid are symbolical representations of the true God, or of the false divinities which have been made the objects of worship in his stead. Baker's Dictionary of Theology says, Because God was unseen and transcendent, men set up idols as a materialistic expression of him. Soon the created thing was worshipped as a god instead of the creator. Notwithstanding, our evangelical camp, considering itself wise enough to exchange the glory of God for images, ignores the biblical and dictionary definitions of idolatry. Number three. The golden calf idol was made to represent the Savior. The Bible provides a classic example to show why people use an image to represent the Lord, how they go about doing it, and the consequences suffered by image users. This is the historic record of Aaron's golden calf found in Exodus 32. Today, everybody knows the golden calf was an idol, thus the terms golden calf and idol are almost synonyms. But today, who among us knows that God's people made that golden image to represent God, their Elohim, who saved them from Egypt? Israel thought they needed an image because their leader, Moses, had been taken up by the Lord into the mountain weeks before and had not yet returned. Therefore the people came to Aaron and said, Make us Elohim, who will go before us. As for this fellow, uh, this fellow Moses, we don't know what has happened to him. Exodus 32 verses 4 and 5 uh, states, And he, Aaron, received their gold offering at their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool after he had made it a molten calf. And they said, These be thy gods, O Israel, which brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. Note, the Hebrew word gods here is Elohim. It could also be translated God. All the letters in the Hebrew Bible were capital letters, no upper and lower case distinction. Translators must decide whether it means gods or God. 
each time Elohim is found. Elohim is plural. Actually, the Hebrew word Elohim is translated into English as God, singular, with a capital G, about 2,500 times. And when Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord, Jehovah. Obviously, Aaron and the people made the image to represent Jehovah their Elohim. Elohim here is the same word that was translated God in Genesis 1.1, which says, In the beginning God, Elohim, created the heaven and the earth. And Elohim here in the golden calf story is uh, also the same word translated God in the Ten Commandments, where it says, I am the Lord thy God, Elohim, which have brought thee out of the land of Egypt. Thou shalt have no other God, Elohim, before me. The context shows that the people made the golden calf to represent the Elohim who is the creator of the world, who saved them from Egyptian bondage. The next lesson in this story is that despite the people's stated intentions, God did not accept the image as a valid representation of him. Their worship directed toward the image did not pass on to the God they intended the image to represent. How do we know that God did not accept it as worship of himself? Up on the mountain, God told Moses the people had made a molten calf and have worshipped it. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now therefore let me alone, that my wrath may wax hot against them, and that I may consume them, and I will make of thee a great nation. This shows how serious it is for God's people to presume to make an image to represent the Lord. Is it any less serious a matter for God's people today to presume to make and use images to stand in the place of the Lord? God's name must not be given to images. Isaiah 42.8 tells us that God does not give his glory to idols. Every attempt to make a similitude of God representing him in some artistic form is idolatrous by definition. It is basically the same sin as making the golden calf. Pictures of Christ serve the very same function for the church which the golden calf served for Israel. They are made to stand for the Savior. They are golden calves. The issue at stake in the making of idols is clearly presented in Deuteronomy 4, verses 12, 13, and 15. And the Lord spake unto you out of the midst of the fire. You heard the voice of the words, but saw no similitude. Only you heard a voice. And he declared unto you his covenant, which he commanded of you to perform, even ten commandments. Take ye therefore good heed unto yourselves, for you saw no manner of similitude on the day that the Lord spake unto you in Horeb out of the midst of the fire, lest ye corrupt yourselves and make you a graven image, the similitude of any figure. Number four. Pictures presumed to present Christ, the second person of the Trinity. Especially since the pictures are not three-dimensional, and since they are intended to represent the Lord, people think they cannot be idols. However, the definition from the Bible says very simply, no similitude. At stake are God's glory and the authority of His written word. 
If we hold to imagery and visualization of the character of God, then we have given up the very principle of the Bible only being the authority for the revelation of God. We have given up the very basis of truth, negating the very foundation on which we stand. Rather than an issue of choice or feeling, the issue is most serious, for in the Bible, idolatry is clearly spoken of as something God hates. Idolatry has always been the Achilles' heel by which the people of God have been wounded and brought down. In our own day, men desire to do it my way, to give in to the humanistic way of portraying God, the manner in which he commanded us not to portray him. Christ is the all-holy God in his humanity. In his earthly days, his humanity contained the fullness of his divinity. But that humanity is now no longer on earth. We know him no longer after the flesh, as the scripture says, Rather, we know him now in spirit and in truth, for we know spiritual things spiritually, and it is in God's light, that is through his word and the Holy Spirit's enlightening us, that we see light. The word of God is now written into the heart of the believer. His word is crystal clear on the second commandment. The clarion call is, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 6, not to think beyond what is written. The gospel is at stake, for the scripture states that faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. The gospel, as it is written, read, and spoken one to another, is the power of God unto salvation. One power of the word is that it is propositional truth. Rather than being subjective and unverifiable, the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Continually in the Old and New Testaments, there is the commandment of God and the warning of God not to depict him in a visual way. In olden times in Israel, the people deviated from the written word and then there would come a famine in the land. For example, in Amos 8, verses 11 and 12, Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord God, and I will send a famine on the land, not a famine of bread, nor a thirst for water, but of hearing the words of the Lord. Thus, in our day, if young children are given pictures of Christ, or if they see videos of Christ, then in their hearts there comes a famine for the written word. There's no desire or longing to know God because they think they have known Him through the form of images, the very thing that God forbids in His Word. As one minister sadly observed, revival will not come in our day because people do not know the law of God and thus do not feel their need for the Savior. Children today are brought up to think they see or know Christ by the pictures rather than to meditate on the God-given words of him who is the brightness of God's glory and the express image of his person. So quite easily they fail when it comes to understanding that they are dead in trespasses and sin, and therefore in need of being justified freely by his grace. Romans 3.24 The one whom they think they see in the picture is so easy to look upon 
and the message to receive him into their hearts is such an easy action, it is one quick ritual. They have been sold idolatry while failing to be taught the gospel verse by verse and doctrine by doctrine. They need to be taught the verses and doctrines which teach that salvation is freely given to the sinner by God's grace alone, through faith alone, and to God alone be the glory. To furnish children, or anyone for that matter, with pictures and videos of Jesus is to withhold the birthright and to serve them a mess of pottage instead. Woe to those who cause these little ones to stumble. Number five, the picture as a mediator opens the door for pantheism and Gnosticism. What other errors do pictures of Christ idols bring into the evangelical camp? For one thing, they confuse Christ the Creator with uh, created things. This opens the door for pantheistic religions to come into the church, unaware that Christ is not a created being. Pantheism presumes that everything in the universe is God revealing himself or itself by that form. The picture is thus just another part of their pantheon. However, we know the creation is not God. To picture the form of a created man and to label that picture with the name of the Creator is to confuse Creator with creation. Romans 1.21 states the cause of such confusion is because that when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. The regression continues. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image, made like to corruptible man, and to birds, and four-footed beasts, and creeping things. Romans 1, 22 and 23. Isaiah 40, 18 states the problem, To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness will you compare unto Him? Romans 12, 2 states the scriptural answer to this problem unequivocally, And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. These pictures, delightful as they may be to the senses, confuse and obscure the distinction between God and His created world. They present a deception. The pictures confirm to the pantheist, the person who thinks everything is God manifesting itself in some form, that Jesus is merely another part of their pantheon. Similarly, to the natural man, puffed up by his own darkened imaginations, these pictures confirm that the Word of God is of no interest to him. The pictures lay the foundation for many pantheistic New Age concepts of God to come into the Church, because the basic presumption of pantheism is everything is God manifesting itself. No wonder the Western Church is being ravaged by Eastern cults. No wonder that these people, us, such as Hindus love pictures of Christ as much as they do those of Lakme. Yet God has ordained the means by which people old and young shall be saved and taught. It is clearly spelled out in Romans 10, verses 14 and 15. How then shall they call on him whom they have not believed? 
And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? As it is written, How beautiful are the feet of them that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things. These pictures also open the door for Gnosticism to come into the church. When a picture is given a name of God, it presumes the picture mediates knowledge of God. The viewer is made to think he thereby knows God, Gnostically, at least in some measure by seeing the picture. In this Gnostic-type knowledge of Christ, the viewer is allowed to go on silently thinking his own thoughts, unhindered by the transforming power of God's word. Thus the viewer's mind continues to be conformed to the world by the limits of the created image and by his own subjectivity. In this Gnostic-type knowledge of Christ, pictures of Jesus silently address the physical senses of the viewers without presenting God's propositional truth to uh, objectively and explicitly to their minds. Rather, the viewer of a picture attaches his own subjective interpretation to whatever the picture seems to present to him. Thus both the artist and the viewer blend God and his creation into a single unity, a single being in the picture. No wonder the church is infected with Gnostic heresies. Number six, pictures of Jesus corrupt true worship of Christ. People who use pictures of Christ deny they worship the pictures, but rather think the pictures serve them to worship Christ. This is essentially justifying the use of a medium, a practice well established in the Roman Catholic Church. In rationalizing her setting aside of the Second Commandment, the Roman Catholic Church states clearly but heretically that the honor rendered to an image passes to its prototype, and whoever venerates an image venerates the person portrayed in it. While in fact, the pictures do help to form a concept of Christ for those who use them in worship, unbiblical as that concept of Christ is, the basis of their worship is not the written word of God, but rather the basis of worship becomes the visual depiction before them. Rather than drink from the fountain of living water, they have turned for their knowledge of God to broken cisterns, which they have hewn out with their own hands. Eventually, the use of images to represent Christ can lead, as it did in the Mass of the Catholic Church, to thinking the image, the bread which in this case started out as a symbol, is literally Christ himself. In the Mass, the highest point of Rome's liturgy, is claimed worship which is due to the true God by the use of the communion bread, supposedly transformed into the real body of Christ by the power of the priesthood. All this in Roman Catholicism is claimed to be done in his name. The result is that Christ is replaced as people look to the image. Acceptance of pictures of Christ completely changed the worship of the Catholic Church. Why don't evangelicals sound the alarm? Idolatry by means of pictures of Christ has so deceived and enraptured the hearts and minds of people in the evangelical camp that false pictures of Christ are passionately defended and promoted as if the pictures were Christ himself. Attacks on these idols are treated as attacks on the true Christian faith. 
Given such honor, these idols proceed to corrupt Christian education, evangelism, and true worship. This idolatrous concept of Christ is being visited upon or imposed upon our next generations. See again Romans 1 verses 22 to 32 for a description of what happens generationally. God gave them over, gave them over, gave them over when people exchange the glory of God for an image. The Bible accepts no man-made picture as being a picture of Christ, neither should we. Number seven, Islam does not allow pictures of Allah. Why should Christians allow pictures of the true God? A most basic principle of Islam, the religion founded by Muhammad, is that no picture or image can stand for Allah. Islam's God. Where can an image of Allah be found in any Islamic land? There are none. If Christians do not respect the teachings of the Bible, that no image can stand for God, will God again raise up Islam to teach this lesson to Christians? He did it in the past. In the first century after the death of Muhammad, Islam conquered many Christian lands in the Middle East and North Africa. In these lands, the churches were severely repressed, much like Christian churches are severely repressed in Syria, Iran, and most other Islamic lands today. Conversion to Christianity is still sometimes punishable by death in these lands. Even though Muslims do not believe in the deity of Christ, Muslims consider Jesus to have been a prophet, and no pictures are allowed of their prophets in many of these Muslim lands. Pictures of Jesus tell strict Muslims that image-using Christians are infidels worthy of severe punishment. Number 8. The Bible is sufficient. Man-made images are not needed. What then shall we do? What must we do when we become aware that by biblical definition we commit idolatry when we use pictures to represent Christ? In the 16th century, when the great reformers preached, there was a return to biblical faith. May it happen again. The Bible was preached as being the ultimate authority. The words of the Bible were all sufficient to show the transcendent character and person of God, that is, who He is, that He is spirit, infinite, eternal, unchangeable in His being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. Here are several verses that tell us what we should do when we become aware that we are practicing what the Bible calls idolatry. First, we are told to repent of idolatry. In Acts 17, verses 29 and 30, after Paul told the idolatrous Athenians that it is not reasonable to think God is like art created by man's imagination, and telling them that even though God in the past winked at or closed his eyes to their ignorant idolatry, now God commands all people everywhere to repent. Another thing, we should humble ourselves and confess that we have broken God's law and defiled God's grace. In 1 John 1.9, we're promised that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And thirdly, we're to separate ourselves from idolatry. 
it says in Second Corinthians six sixteen that there is no agreement between the temple of God and idols, and that we are the temple of the living God. We're to come out from among them and separate ourselves from those who persist in idolatry. The words of the Bible, the gospel message unto salvation, were paramount in times of reformation. Until the recent era, this was still the case in the evangelical world. There were no pictures of Christ when the biblical definition of idolatry was known, no giving in to the worldly ways of mankind on this issue. But rather the truth of God was explained in God's way, in written and spoken words of propositional truth. The punishment of idolatry is severe as the second commandment and both the Old Testament and the New Testament make clear. Yielding to the temptation to visualize Christ or the Father or the Holy Spirit must be repented of, for God is holy and the Bible is sufficient. As 1 John 5:20 and 21 concludes, And we know that the Son of God is come and hath given us an understanding that we may know him that is true, and we are in him that is true, even in his Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780 780- 450-3730 by fax at 780-468-1096 or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle is adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, 
they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.